Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all of our content that we put out on the internet. Best way to do that is to follow me on Twitter at, at Focus Compounding. Uh, if you're interested in learning about our money management services, you can reach out to me at andreafocuscompounding.com. Our new podcast schedule is to be in the air on Monday and Wednesday and in print on Fridays. And part of the way we want to keep uh, this podcast schedule and our print schedule you know, new, refreshed, and interesting is by everybody sending in questions that you want us to bring up on the podcast and both for uh, the write-ups. So email me your questions at andrew at focuscompounding.com. Just put in the description podcast question, and I'll be able to save it uh, and pull it for the shows. If you're interested in spinoffs and invent-driven investing, one of the best monitors out there on the internet is Inside Arbitrage. I go to this website every single day. Um, we have an affiliate link in the description. Be sure to click that, uh, which will give you a discount and tell them that you heard about them from Focus Compounding. Be sure to check it out. So in today's podcast, we are going to talk about Peter Lynch and what exactly did it mean when he said, buy what you know. Uh, so for those who don't know, Peter Lynch ran the Magellan Fund uh, from 1977 uh, to 1990, and the average annual return was 29%. And when he took over, AUM was $18 million, and by the time he left, it was $14 billion. I personally think Peter Lynch is one of the best places for new investors to start if they are interested in investing. You Could Be a Stock Market Genius is one of the best investing books written on the planet. However, um, I think it's a better book to read once you have more of a solid understanding of what stocks are and what investing intelligently uh, with a, like a value approach means. Uh, I think Peter Lynch, uh, one up on Wall Street or beating the street, is probably the best place to start. Would you agree with that, Jeff? Yep, it's a good way to start. Yeah, good way to start. So we could talk about him as an investor, the way that he invested, um, uh, and you know what our takeaways are from his style of investing. Uh, at the end of Beating the Street, he does have what he calls 25 Golden Rules for Investing. Um, I'll put this in the description. We actually have talked about it before on the podcast, um, but all very good stuff. And he's famous for investing in what you know, right? That's what he talked about. Uh, a lot in his books, he would talk about how he would do a lot of scuttlebutt, go and visit, um, you know, stores in the mall, go and visit a lot of these companies. Sometimes stock ideas just came from uh, his daughter liking a new product or a new brand. And, you know, that's, I think, a great way for people just to get accustomed to investing and accustomed to uh, the stock market in general. Um, but, you know, there is a difference between um, a company being, you know, just a great company, a great brand and a company being an actually great investment. So I want to sort of decipher between the two and we could talk about it. What do you think he means when he says, buy what you know? 
and how can investors actually you know use that framework to you know put up good returns or good numbers because you know just buying what you know uh doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to um compound your money at a great rate of return you know there's that valuation component to it that's super important so let's talk about it i want to get your thoughts on it and you know tell us what you think he means when he says buy what you know well, I think it's related to two things. One, Peter Lynch liked to do this like two-minute drill where he'd set time on the clock. In fact, he'd say he'd cheat and set a little less time than he always said that he would and have people pitch him stock ideas, right, just in their own words and in a short period of time so they couldn't, you know, go to a PowerPoint or an Excel or those things that that trip a lot of people up. And uh, the basic story of the stock, why it's going to go up, why things are getting better, why it's cheap, why whatever, you know, why are you going to make money in this stock? And then he would evaluate it. And... It helps tremendously. That's the best way to get stock ideas. That's better than screens or anything. But pitches about things that you know nothing about and have no grounding in are useless. So you, it needs to be something that he knows and can connect in some way because otherwise you can't tell the difference between BS and and real stuff. And it's very easy for people to take advantage of you um, and present things that they don't really understand or to actually commit fraud and stuff in areas you don't understand. You're not going to be taken in by a lot of frauds in areas you understand. A fraud will always be some concept you don't understand on the other side of the world that sounds very exotic and stuff. It's not going to be something in your hometown that's a gas station and, and things like that that you, if you understand that business and you've worked in it before. So, um. You need to, you know, to get someone to invest in something they shouldn't invest in or to take someone in a fraud or whatever. You basically need someone who doesn't understand some concept that you're kind of skirting over there, right? So, you know, um, Munger talked about how bad a business like a Caterpillar dealership or something was. If someone's never been in a business with inventory and stuff, you might be able to sell them the business and present numbers and stuff and just kind of go over that. But if someone's been in a business in which inventory is the biggest aspect of it, they're not going to buy that kind of business without saying to you, well, how much is that and how do I finance and this and that and you know, the next thing. So um, that's one of it. The other thing is I think Peter Lynch ran a mutual fund for everyday people. And one thing is when you talk to people by email, when you talk to them in person, whatever, you are struck by how they do not invest in things that they know and they always want to invest in things that they don't know and that their returns are really, really bad. So the big thing is always, you know, uh, even if mutual funds underperform index funds and stuff, they're still going to outperform individual investors because individual investors are going to do actively bad things that they shouldn't do. And the big one for that is they're going to ignore the things that they know and go into the things that they don't know. So. Mm -hmm. One of the things that has always stood out to me about him was, didn't he say, even though he put up such incredible performance, basically nobody held throughout that whole time and, and made a lot of money investing in his mutual fund? Because they would jump in and jump out and mm -hmm. the behavioral aspect of it. Yeah. So he was talking about like the average or the median investor that way. Morningstar tries to calculate things now more and there's more advanced ways of doing that now, I guess. What he did was basically like I just asking like, can you go into the archives and try to figure this out for me? Yeah. That's true generally. I mean, the results are really bad that way. But by the way, they're bad that way in index funds too if people aren't like trapped in them or something. I, th I think that that's one of the advantages. We've talked about that before. I mean, there's no reason to buy an index fund. You, if you have $300,000, just buy $10,000 of every Dow stock, dig a hole in the ground, put physical copies of the certificates in there, and don't do anything when they merge, when they spin out, when they get dropped from the Dow, whatever, and take it out. At the end, you've paid no expenses, and there's no reason to really believe that an index fund will do much better or much worse over very, very long periods of time. Um, but... 
you're not going to do that where you might put money every uh, paycheck into an index fund and not take it out. So they're providing the service of, you know, it's not investing or something, but it's a service of protecting you from doing something else. But the idea that index funds are better than randomly buying stuff and whatever, you know, there's no reason to believe that they would be. Um, There aren't advantages that way, but there is advantages psychologically for you of telling you you didn't underperform against an index fund. But, you know, why are we using the index fund as a benchmark to sell other index funds and stuff? You know, you could use all sorts of benchmarks. That's not a realistic one. Why not use the median stock? Why not use all sorts of things? So I think that, um, that, you know, investors do a lot of things that harm them. And that is where professional money managers like Peter Lynch get their returns is taking advantage of um, the other people who are in the market who make mistakes. And some of those people are institutional, but some of them are individuals. And that's the pool of profits that you make is from them making mistakes. Are you surprised that he was able to put up 29% uh, returns annual, uh, especially because he took such a diversified approach to managing uh, the portfolio? So, I mean, he would own like thousands of companies at one time, right? A, A position size for him could have been like 10 or 20 basis points, right? I mean, very tiny. So are you surprised that he was able to put up those returns? Because generally speaking, if you're going to put up returns like that, you need to be fairly concentrated. I mean, I think there's some misunderstanding of Peter Lynch that way in that he was fairly concentrated by industry sometimes, and he was maximally concentrated in terms of regulatory things at times. So if you own close to 5% or something as mutual fund, that would be, you're not going to go over that of that time. Um, the fact that you own lots of small positions doesn't make a big difference one way or the other. And it certainly doesn't hurt versus having it in cash. So it's not a bad thing that way. He probably did it for information reasons to be able to follow all those companies, even just to be able to tell them. Because even though he wasn't a large investor for the fund, one advantage of it is that you can tell them, Bank of whatever in New England, that I'm your largest investor and you can get information from them and stuff. So he probably based it a lot on that. So there are possibilities that they could go up if you just buy everything you like that way. There's nothing really wrong with doing that. Um, but the idea that the contribution to his returns was from owning a large number of small companies and stuff, probably not that much, although it, it may have allowed him to invest more in smaller companies than some of his competitors mm. who might have, if they concentrate somewhat, if they try to put 2% in everything, they'll be a purely large cap fund. Whereas if he's willing to take a thousand small positions, he can at least be in small caps instead of being in large caps with his sort of cash portion of what he can't really invest. And so would it do better than cash? Would it do better than large caps? Maybe, and that might be an advantage of doing it. Um, and like I said, he you know he did the two-minute drill type thing. Um, yeah, it's a larger question. We have mixed feelings about it. There's stuff that I find that would be interesting, and our fund is of a size that it's a problem. You know, I I see some things I say, oh, this will do really well. And it's an easier thing to understand, more certain that it'll work out whatever than what we own. But even with our broker doing the best job possible and nice breaks in terms of the nothing happening with the stock to drive it up and whatever, we'll only get 0.7% of our portfolio in it maximally or something, you know. And... Uh, is it worth the time and the effort and everything to do it? I don't know, but you come across it either way, so maybe it's fine to to do it. Um, and it stops you from doing something stupid. I mean, the most important thing when we talk about position sizing and stuff, Kelly Criterion, right, is that that's the maximum amount for when you're right. People talk about it as if it's the optimal amount to bet and stuff. It's, it's a better to think about it is that if you exceed 
the limits of it. It's it shouldn't really be called the Kelly criterion that way. It should be called like the Kelly limit or something. If you exceed that limit, then even though you are right, you can make positive wagers and yet go broke. As long as you're below that limit, you can't go broke, right? That's that's the point of it is how you don't go broke making the right um, decisions. But the important thing is you should never make a negative bet. You should never make a bet in which you have a negative edge, so to speak, right? Just because, oh, it helps diversify me or it's the right size or something, that, that, that doesn't have an advantage to you. You're supposed to create a portfolio. You're supposed to create the bet sizing purely from bets that are um, have some positive value, unless you're in a literal gambling game in which you have to ante or something like that. But but other than that, you know, the idea is you make zero or the minimum. You just completely pass or the minimum on things that are bad ideas. And so buy what you know is a lot about just don't do anything in the whole area of of uh, things you know nothing about. Don't play games in which the other people are likely to be at an advantage to you. And Buffett talks about that with the idea of you being the patsy. Um, I think Lynch and Buffett and stuff worry about that more than the average investor. The average investor is not as worried as I am or something about you know, things we talk about here, adverse selection, the nature of the information that I'm getting, what other people might know, what I don't know. Um, I'll give you what are example. some examples of that. Yeah. yeah so you gave me a book in which someone invested in American locker group, which is a tiny, tiny micro cap nano cap many, many years ago. By that point I was investing in the later stages of that story. Um, and so I was picking stocks out and stocks like, like American locker and stuff. Um, I became concerned that it was going to lose the postal service contract. And uh, what I mean by that is not that I had any information that it would lose and stuff, but it was a very important customer. But when you have a very tiny stock, um, some of the people might be buying it purely quantitatively and stuff like that, but other people might be buying it because they know things or have reasons, not, not even knowing things, but they have reasons based on soft information from different things. They can put some things together to figure out. Um, an example from something that we know and talk about is um anyway so american locker Group, i wanted assurances that they weren't going to lose the contract and stuff they, you know never got those assurances obviously that information never came out they did lose the contract and, and bad things happened um but so that would just steer me away from that in other cases the fact that they have high concentration with some customer but i have no reason to believe that anyone could know that they're in trouble with that customer then I wouldn't care as much. So like, I don't know anything about oil prices, but no one else knows anything about long-term oil prices either. I can use the same forward curve information they have, the same 100-year average prices that they have, the same um, things like that. They come out with elaborate estimates of things, but those aren't worth anything. Interest rates are the same way. There's no evidence that anyone predicting interest rates far into the future is useful. The Federal Reserve telling you what interest rates are in 2035 is pointless. So um, there's no reason to not take a bet because you know nothing about interest rates or oil if they're based on long-term averages of those prices. If they're based on information that other people could have that you don't have or that they're better able to understand, then that's a problem. Um, but a good example of that is the, I noticed in Value Investors Club, there was rights up of Nintendo and stuff. I was impressed by one little comment, which said that they moved the Super Mario Mother Brothers movie a very small amount of days. This means it's going to be a big hit. And I thought, actually, that's an unusual case in which there's really good information about Investors Club, which is not financial or anything, but is actually someone who knows the industry giving you important information. The reason why a company a studio would move something a few days like that is because they have internal tracking that shows that it has a chance of taking out a record. Um, why you re-release 
Avatar for a couple of days or Titanic or whatever sometimes is to make it again the biggest movie ever. It's just behind some other movie. Let's release it, re-release it, and we'll you know get it back to get that title. And they know how to do things with the press that way. Uh, the AMC Taylor Swift thing. You can see the ways in which AMC is gaming it to make it sound bigger and everything and how they can use that with the press. Aldi. Aldi's a really interesting one. Um, the the um, discount, hard discount store in the U.S. and stuff. They've gotten the press to write so much about how they're the fastest growing grocery store and all this stuff. And it's not true. H-E-B and Publix are faster growing and are each in like one state. Um, but Aldi's convinced them because it has a nice story that way coming from another country that it's super discount and all of this, that they're small format stores, it's cheap and whatever. Publix H-E-B aren't particularly cheap. They're giant format stores, all that. But by square footage and everything, those two are actually each much bigger growing. Um, but you don't see big articles being written about them. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for it. And so some stuff is like public relations things. And people in the industry, let's say AMC, right, who understand the distribution of it and what this movie is likely to do and all of that, understand some of the things of what AMC is saying, why they would say it that way, and what that means. So AMC has like these little sentences that don't sound that important about how they're guaranteeing a certain number of showtimes and all this stuff. But what they're doing is they're guaranteeing a very short window that it'll play for, but many showtimes for each night, but only on certain days, which is intended to make it sell out. It's intended to hit records right away, pre-sales and stuff, to get articles written about it to get this happening. Because AMC is doing it through its own theaters and other theaters too, but they're the distributor. And so they understand how you can game the system to intentionally cause things to sell out and stuff. If AMC said guaranteed to play for four weeks, two showings a night all week long, they wouldn't get the same press and wouldn't do it. But if they say, we're not telling you how long it'll play, but it's playing on Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays, and we're going to give this many showings in this many places and stuff, it makes it sound like, oh, this is a pretty wide release. But they didn't actually guarantee it is a wide release. And if you do narrower releases, it's possible to sell things out and stuff. So... It's a way to hype it up, and hype is that's fine. That's a huge part of the movie business. It's like being a fight promoter or something. That's that's part of what they do, and um, that will help sell it, and especially a property like that. Um, and then but, they came out with an offering. That's true too. Yeah. Um, but you know, they they these companies know the power of these records and stuff to get people to write about it. You know, there are other industries where that's not important. You know, lots of companies don't care if their stock is high or low, but a company that needs to issue stock does care about it. We've talked about that, you know. And so the information coming out from them is sometimes a little different. The information about a movie, for instance, is going to be somewhat different. You have to interpret that information. What are they trying to do and stuff? They're trying to cause sellouts to cause a sense of scarcity of it to cause press releases about it to make it sound like a big event. That's how you sell movies, you know, for the most part. There's other ways of doing it. They're, why do they release some things that no one's ever heard of and wouldn't know about and stuff in the last days of December? Because it'll be most frequent, it'll be the most recently known things for Oscar voters. It'll win an Oscar or be nominated for it. Then you can re-release it and it can play in art house places and stuff. Um, you know, if you ever see a movie dumped in January or something, in the middle of January, um, that's probably going to be the worst movie you've ever seen because it was intended either to come out in December, like as you know, in sometime last year when people were actually going to movies and ho holidays and stuff, right? Or 
it was intended to win Oscars. Something went wrong with the movie. It either isn't pleasing the audiences or it isn't pleasing. It, they know it won't please Academy voters or both. And if that happens and it was not planned there, then, you know, it's bad. On the other hand, if you have a movie dropped there that is some schlocky sci-fi movie, it might be fine. They knew it was, it's counter-programming. They knew it, critics would never like it. They knew it, most audiences wouldn't like it. They just said, what's the emptiest part of the year to drop it? Let's drop it there. Um, so there's like other information that you can get with these things. And that's important. Um, in an industry and to understand what that means in that industry. And so you could be at a disadvantage because what if other people know these things with the ones we just mentioned, for the most part, it doesn't matter that much. AMC releases a lot of movies. These other companies release lots of things. So one movie or something isn't make or break. You, you, there's no way through the stock market for you to bet on that. Although you might have strong feelings one way or the other, but in other industries, you have to be careful because you know, you buy into legal situations, um, FDA approvals of things, um, fads, fashion things. There are other people who know more than you do and who understand what's happening and can see the patterns of that faster than you can. You know, um, we talked about Dollar General. So someone had asked about Dollar General a while back or something, and, and I said, like, um, I don't remember what podcast it was or anything about it. But I said, you know, it's a great company and I've looked at it and stuff, but it's going to have a really hard time. Um, and that's because I have some like leading indicators in that that other people might not with where I live and who I know and stuff. In fact, leading on what the company itself might know. So there's a tendency for the company to look too much at what sales actually are in their locations and to base too much on that and not to think, well, actually, that's a trailing, you know, or a coincident indicator. If we want a leading indicator, we need to know what our customer's situation is for future visits to the store, which isn't reflected at all in what they're doing at the store. We need something that leads even that. And my point was just like you've never seen a boom for poor rural people in the United States like you did in COVID. They were richer than they've ever been or are likely to ever be again in a really big way, really suddenly. And this has a big effect on how they spend and stuff and has a big effect coming down from that. It affects them much more than anyone else in the country. So rich people not as affected, or urban people not as affected, any of that. But the fact that there was a big inflation into their attitudes and their behaviors and stuff makes sense. But, you know, the closest stores to me are Dollar General. I know people who manage Dollar Generals. Um, I know the core customers of Dollar General spend a lot of time with them. So that's something where... Wall Street probably doesn't know that well, and even some Dollar General things now might not know that well. Um, so it's just a danger because what if someone actually knows that and you don't? Um, and I like the reverse. Uh, you know, one thing that was really exciting for me with investing in in Greg's in the UK is I was stunned by how much people in London who are in the financial business and stuff just like. Um, didn't care as much as they should have about the business or think about it and think about what was going on in the rest of their country and stuff. Um, you just got the sense that if it had been super popular in London, um, it would have more coverage and stuff. It's sort of like the early Dollar General story um, where, you know, New York, things are not giving as much attention, but it's more extreme in places like like the UK. 
compared to the U.S. about the degree of difference between things. So in the U.K., I'd always want to find something that's like much bigger outside of London than it is in London or something. Doesn't have as much connections to the financial community because it's very insular. Like once you started reading about what they were saying about it and everything, you just got the impression that they weren't spending too much time worrying about the lowest income furthest away from London customers, what their patterns were and stuff. They were much more comfortable dealing a lot because London's so much more, that area is so much more important to their country as a whole than like in the United States where there's no part of the United States that is nearly as meaningful. You can't just sit around in New York and think you have a read on the country. But they do that in London, a finance community at least. And, uh, you know, that helped in being like, oh, they're not bothering to figure out that much about this company and stuff to the same extent that they would if this was a trend in London or something, you know. Um, Peter Lynch actually talks about that in his book that he had this sandwich shop he really liked in Boston and everything. And then eventually he kind of realized, oh, this is like a great sandwich shop for people making the kind of money fund managers making the convenience we want and stuff in a place like Boston. But how many places like Boston are there around the country? Oh, there's actually not that many. You know, um, Taco Bell is probably going to do better. You can put one of those everywhere, you know. Um, so just because you like something personally, you do have to think, well, this isn't for everybody. Um there's some things that you might like a lot and you can connect to, but it doesn't play out in the rest of the country or the world. And there's things that are the verse where you go, oh, this isn't for me, but it makes a lot of sense for other people. So just curious, I mean, you know, you invested in like BWX technologies, right? So like yeah. buying what you know, how do you sort of get to that level of comfortability of I understand I'm not the patsy at this table and what right. could be sort of more of a complicated company right like you could understand mm -hmm. frost it's harder to know like exactly what's going on on the inside of a bank and especially with lending money stuff but let's talk about bwx right and just uh you know how you got to that point of buying and understanding what you knew in that situation right so so bwx technologies which is a nuclear company um uh, mainly making nuclear reactors for u.s submarines nuclear powered submarines and um also for carriers, right? Both of them. And also did other things like uranium down blending and stuff like that. And uh, things like making pits and stuff for the nuclear weapons program. And, you know, so nuclear weapons program, um, making new stuff, nuclear weapons program, down blending the old stuff so that it could be used in other things in the industry and supplying nuclear powered Navy. Um, so nuclear technology for the government, they were really big in it. Um, the key thing there is that it was 50 years old. Uh, the original thoughts about doing this in the industry and stuff were by the time I was investing about 60 years old. The idea that um, what, what had been Babcock's technology and stuff, what kind of reactors you would use, what, you know, that you would use um, water, you know, so that these are steam things, um, that you would, what fuel sources you would use, how you would do it, all this stuff had been decided, had been kind of the dominant design for at least 50 years. And um, there were not, uh, there, there was not a lot of change. It was an orphan technology in my view, right? Nuclear is very important, but basically about 40 years ago um, from today, so over 30 years ago, the time I was investing in, in Babcock, in BWX, um, they basically said, we're giving up on the technology, right? The late 70s, early 80s, you got a disaster, but you also have really high capital costs and stuff, and you just stop pursuing that. It's kind of like going to the moon, right? 
United States went to the moon, all this stuff, and then the space program just like stopped. They do some stuff in orbit. They put a space station up there. But if you ask someone from back then, they'd say, of course, we'll have been to Jupiter and stuff and the moons of Jupiter and seeing if there's life there and stuff. No one from 1970 could have thought, oh, we'll not even go as far as we've been going before 50 years later. No one would have thought we wouldn't be on Mars and stuff, right? So why not? Because we basically gave up on it, right? We gave up on nuclear. So that made it attractive to me. Um, is a lot we talked about with Jacob, um, uh, early cars and stuff, right? It's a lot easier to understand the car industry after a few decades because there's dominant designs, which can be completely arbitrary of how you put together a car, why it's that way. It's not because it's really that great or anything. I have no idea if that's the best design for nuclear stuff. Once you start designing it that way, you're unlikely to switch. One becomes dominant versus the others. Um, you know, and then there was limitations in terms of who else had nuclear technology and whether they were likely to be allowed to use it one way, vice versa. So you need NATO countries, probably basically the United States, because it's by far the biggest consumer of nuclear stuff. Um, it has to be a U.S. company doing it. So um, the fact that Russia or China yeah, at the time I was looking at China was thinking about building a lot of things. Um, wanted to do a lot of this. Well, they weren't going to compete for those, but neither could go the other way and any of that information ever be shared with them. So the biggest issue with that, well, there's a couple issues. One was capital allocation. Hard to predict that ahead of time. But two was understanding the political, the government aspects of it. Were there risks to the Navy's budget and stuff like that? That was really what the concern was. You know, who sets the budget? Where are they? What political parties are they? What districts are they in? Um who determines things at the Navy and all of that. And, you know, the conclusion that we came to is that um, this was really important to them, the nuclear weapons aspect of it. So, so um, you know, not only did Babcock make nuclear weapon stuff for them, but they also, um, one of the kinds of ships that they reactors went into carries uh, bullet ballistic missiles that are nuclear. Um, so you have subs that are meant for fighting other subs and for other... Um, ships but you have other ones that are meant as part of a nuclear deterrent that they you can't find them and they can fire nuclear missiles so are they likely to be around for a long time are carrier groups likely to be around for a long time and if they are do they have to be nuclear powered and everything um so that was the decisions there i don't think that it was particularly difficult to figure out those things in the long term um but you could be wrong i mean you know the 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 issue is do I think other people know it better? Um, yeah, there's some things like whether a specific class would work out or be changed or whatever, and something did happen with that eventually. Um, I think that people, you know, um, investment, big investment firms, you know, uh, investment banks and things like that, um, uh, big, big institutional managers have people who cover policy stuff who would know the people involved in everything and have a better idea of, oh, this is going to overrun on this project by a lot. Oh, Congress doesn't really like this and is going to investigate this thing and whatever. I didn't think it would make a big difference, but whether they would speed up or not, you know, um, they would know that better. So the timing of it, they would probably know better. It was a spinoff, so the idea was really to make money off of the spin part of it, that breaking it up would have you make money over the next year or two, and that was kind of the catalyst. But 
in terms of them understanding the budget better and what's likely to happen over the next three years, yeah, I think you're at a disadvantage versus people who have that kind of knowledge. So what are some real world examples that uh, people can do or implement in their own life to just keep their eyes and ears open for like investing in and finding these unique Peter Lynch type situations? I mean, would you classify Celsius as being one of those? We like the product. We saw that it was a micro cap. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously there's some recency bias there, but it's it's been pretty successful. It's pretty crazy mm-hmm. that they're like a one product company that is as big as it is. Well, yeah. So Peter Lynch talks about that. And that's really, really, really critical. Um, it's a Buffett thing. It's a Peter Lynch thing. You have to find companies where your insight about it really moves the needle. And that's the big mistake that people make sometimes. So there'll be some article written up in like... Uh, I don't know. I don't know where it was, but say it's a Barron's or a Fortune or something years ago about Wrigley's, right? And it was like Wrigley's is going to have some nutritional added whatever thing. Okay, if it's a huge hit, what's it going to be? Five percent of their gum is going to be that way compared to everything else that they sell, and it's going to take forever to it to be meaningful. He talks about how he looked at like uh, Hanes and stuff or, or whatever the company was at the time that he was looking at it um, that did like um, legs, hosiery in a um, in an egg container thing that you could sell at grocery stores and stuff. And so that would be like a big product for them. Whereas a new product thing for Procter & Gamble stuff, it's not going to matter. So a one product company is great to find. Um, something where you have big insight, you know. Um, and in terms of you having an insight into something, it would be helpful if it is, um, like we said, like a one product company. It could also be helpful if it is a very specific niche that you understand and the company's doing a lot in that. Um, so even like your local bank, right? It could be. Um, a lot of times who you get different insurance things from, different things, who you get supplies from, different things at a company. You know, at a company, you're going to have a lot of these things where you would come in contact with it. And that's kind of Peter Lynch's point. Like say you worked at a car dealership or something, right? Okay, yes, you know about where you are in the cycling car things and whether you can sell that through or whatever. But you're also, if you pay a lot of attention to what's happening there, right? They've got to be buying uniforms and stuff for, for people doing maintenance work and stuff at the place. They've got to be insuring the place. Um, they've got to be doing different things. They're talking about financial things, real estate things, whatever stuff. They've got to be using some sort of software to be doing things about accounting things and, and whatever stuff. They've got to be doing, I mean, there's all sorts of things that you would understand. Uh, they've got to be doing software things for uh, customer relationship management stuff, right? Like you would spot all sorts of different things and say, oh, this makes us 10 times more productive. Maybe I should look into it. If it's a single product, then that's a really good idea to do. Or if it's a thing that really moves the needle in a big way. Um, so like insurance stuff, right? There are some insurance companies that do like one sort of thing, basically. That's where you want to have the buy what you know. Knowing a lot about Allstate or State Farm or whatever, which, you know, are I'm giving examples of companies you can't really buy, but um, isn't that helpful, right? But if you knew it because you're in the trucking industry and they only insure, um, you know, owner-operator trucking um, businesses or something, then you could know a lot. You could know a lot about that. You could have real context of knowing whether their business is good, but also knowing things about the cycle. So if it looks really cheap or really expensive, what that feels like in terms of your industry and everything. And you could have some real advantages that way. Um, So, yeah, I, I think that there are 
areas that you can do, whether it's very, very focused geographically or very, very focused in terms of product. That's a big thing that people think that they know something about sort of a diversified whatever, but you've got to ask how much does it really move the needle. There's huge write-ups about Berkshire Hathaway and different parts of it and whatever. Berkshire Hathaway really doesn't matter outside of like five buckets or whatever, which Buffett has outlined. Um, you can analyze all the other stuff as much as you want. It's small. It doesn't take a lot of new capital compared to what it's already in. So it's not really going to move things. If some big giant bank says we're going to get into something, it's not going to move things all that fast. I mean, even when we talked about Frost, which is all of Texas and stuff, they're like, oh, we're going to introduce um, mortgage stuff, which they haven't done for a long time that they're going to do themselves. And they say, oh, well, may our goal, if we grow it and we can sell all this stuff and do all this right years down the road, let's say five years from now or something, maybe we can get it up till it's about 10% of our loans. Right, and what are their loans? Like half of their balance sheet at most or something. So, okay. It's not very big, right? If you have some insights about the mortgage business, um, that's not the company to look at, a company that's adding it as a small complement to the business. A company that is um originating or like warehouse uh, stuff or whatever in um mortgages, then you would that would be the one to focus on. Because you would know things and, and not others, you know? Um, so, I mean, other companies we talk about, there's some that you could know a lot about, right? So, um, you could know a lot compared to others about America's Car Mart. It's only in a specific part of the country, very specific customer segment, making one kind of loan. If you know a lot about subprime things, if you know a lot about more rural, you could really have information there that they don't have. Um, you could be able to make good bets that way because they, they could have really vague ideas about, oh, I think the economy will work out pretty well overall. Okay, fine, you know, um, in other parts of the country. So, and just assume it'll work out there because what they're seeing is, um, you know, uh, prime stuff in urban areas and whatever is what they're used to seeing, you know. So that, those are the advantages. The biggest advantage, though, is that it's just going to steer you clear of stuff that you don't understand, that doesn't make sense, and that you can be taken in by. So that's the biggest thing is the defense is that you understand something about the products, the processes, whatever. Then when people say things that make absolutely no sense, it won't take you in. Like there's a reason why Theranos had to be that kind of thing because they could just say it to people and they'd be like, oh, I don't really know how that works. So, okay. Mm-hmm. That would be nice if that was true, right? So yeah. you can be fooled by that. But if they said it about something that you knew a great deal more about, you go, hmm, I don't know. You know, if, if you said, oh, we're going to give, um, instead of, you know, blood testing stuff, you said, oh, we're going to give meal replacements. That's going to be a cube. And uh, it will taste just as good as any food you've ever had, but it's going to replace the 300-calorie thing. Okay, you've eaten a lot of stuff, so you're going to say, no, I don't believe you. I have serious problems with how you could possibly do that, right? You've eaten disgusting things before and things that tasted good. So it's not that science can't eventually come up with that, but you've got some serious questions about that. Blood things will be like, well, I don't know anything about that. But the idea that you could make something incredibly dense and have a lot of calories and taste okay, most people would say, no, that's not possible. I know, mm -hmm. you know, that things have, you know, how things taste good and stuff. And that sounds silly, but that's actually, that's why you don't create a scam along lines that people can actually understand. You have to create it along something kind of exotic and stuff because otherwise people will go, well, no, that doesn't make sense.
it's kind of like when you were talking about FTX, right? Like we're in the financial industry and you were saying, uh, you know, they talk about bringing, you know, regulation and transparency and not being a fraud, but everything that they did to set themselves up was everything that a fraud would do, right? All-star mm -hmm. board, incorporate yeah. outside the United States, um, have these partnerships with these huge uh, influencers, I guess you could say, in America or just with these people with massive followings. I mean, you had said on the podcast that it was so obvious to you that something was going on. Yeah, well, I mean, we just mentioned a couple that are like super clear in terms of weirdness of that. that not necessarily that they're frauds, but that they're intending to manage your expectations in every way, right? That's really clear, like, what they're doing. Um, there's lots of other ones where that's not true, but it's really complicated. Th those are the most common ones where I've talked to people, and, you know, I think my answer to them is more polite um, than I should intend it to be, which is, you know, I don't understand this, and if I don't understand this in the way that they're doing it, they don't want me to understand it about the accounting. Um and that doesn't necessarily mean it's a fraud or something, but they're doing that to manage what the reported earnings are and what you think it is. They're trying to describe it as something other than what it actually is. And, you know, that's where I have a problem with it. Um, and I would steer very clear of those. And people who understand accounting things or understand those specific businesses might understand what they're doing and why they're presenting it that way. Um, that's always my biggest concern. My biggest concern is if you invest in something that you don't know, you're going to read the investor presentation first and you're going to talk and use the terms that they use in the investor presentation. And there's just so many ways that you can um, lie with statistics, that you can abuse those kinds of things and make things that are disadvantages sound like advantages. And, you know, um, using the movie business example, there was a company... And it's not particularly bad what they did or anything. It's fine. They're not some scam. It's a real thing. They explained it perfectly normally. But what happened is they wrote up in something how they get material, right? So their production company and how they get materials, they're like, well, we pay 10% down and then we to option the material. And then if we use it, then we pay the rest of it. And we have the option for a few years and stuff. Now, it's not important that they did that. What's important is that I read write-ups by everyone, whether it's Value Investors Club, their own blogs, whatever, and these are wonderful, nice people, but they all included this. Here's the thing. If you want to buy a script, saying it's 15 against 150, it's 25 against 250, is like the way it's been done for a half a century or something since the studio system broke up. It's totally normal. It's how any producer who doesn't even have any connections any money any whatever would try it. if we, you and i wrote a script that was great people would say oh i'll give you twenty thousand dollars and if i can if the movie gets made you get two hundred thousand right like i don't know how i'm gonna do this just give me a few years here's twenty thousand now and we do this this is totally normal and how everyone does it but it was talked about like nvr versus these other ones that were buying the land versus optioning the land and like some novel know, new idea yeah, yes. If you want to buy Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling and, and the publisher and stuff are probably not going to say, oh, here's a small, you can give us a small option and control it for years and stuff. It's, you know, it's different. They could make a lot of money off of it. But for most things, yeah, it's pretty normal to, there's a 9 out of 10 chance it, if it gets optioned, it's not going to get made easily, 9 out of 10, that it's not going to proceed any further in the production process. So yeah, you option and stuff. But like that is true like that's a very basic idea about it that most of the investment in the project will happen close to the time that it's actually made like if you could say not green light it at the last second 
you've stopped spending most of the money that you were going to spend. You might have spent a few million dollars and whatever, but you just stopped spending a huge amount of what was going to happen. That's the cutoff point. So the if if you knew that about what I just said, if you were in oil and gas stuff, you would know better if some what someone means when they're saying about optioning stuff and and royalties and things. Whereas a company could mislead you a lot if they're like you ask some question, right? Why does this not match up with that? And they say, oh, well, it's because we pay some of the lease money up front and then we amortize it over it. And then other ones is based on the units that we produce out of it. It's a per thing, per, you know, ga- uh, per barrel of oil, uh, s- certain number of cents or something. And it's a five-year deal or whatever. Okay, that might be true, might not be true. I don't know. But if you don't know anything about it, they could tell you that. And you don't know the numbers. And so you can't go, wait, but that's like almost all of it. Are you paying it all up front? What's what's happening here? You know, if any number doesn't match up with like a fraud or something, or just them wanting to hit numbers, if you don't know anything about it, they can move everything around. Um, you know, that was my favorite story with the GE uh, book. Um, what's it? Lights Out or Power? Lights out. Whichever. The one that I liked was the one that was written by the Cohen, right? I thought that's one that I liked better. But anyway, um, my, anyway, but because it connects Not here Lights with the, Out then. So that would be okay, Power Failure. Power Failure. I think that was the one where he told the story, but whichever one it was um, yeah. of the example of what I mean is it can even happen in companies, right? That don't understand it. And it's really clear reading those books that GE did. They just earnings are earnings and they didn't understand the differences between the business. So sometimes broadcast was providing these huge high cash flow, whatever earnings. And then there'd be this other business having earnings and we can report as much to the street, but it's really not good quality stuff, you know? And they'd be like, well, let's ditch this one and get this one because it'll move up our earnings. But, you know, there's one part where they're talking to, you know, the head of this thing is talking to the head of that thing. So we're getting a little further removed. And um, to hit the numbers, they're like, okay, can you, that movie that you have planned to go on cable on Christmas, that Christmas movie you have planned for December, can you release that in January? Mm-hmm. Well, no, we can't release the Christmas movie in January. No one will watch it. But <laughs> the the reason why they would do that is they understand the accounting. So if the movie isn't bringing in any money that they have that way, shifting the quarters greatly changes things because of the way that movie accounting works. They're just putting in film inventory until they do that. So all the expense that they're going to have that's going to happen there in terms of how you do it is if you expect your revenue not to be spread over a long period of time, you're going to get hit with a big expense in a single quarter. And they want that quarter to be the first quarter of next year where they probably have something else inside GE that can compensate for it and not this quarter where we're already short of the numbers, right? But if you're in the abstract and stuff, then you'll just be like, oh, vaguely, oh, GE manipulates earnings a bit. Okay, whatever. But if you understand that kind of anecdote and stuff, then, you know, they're going through their business like, can how much does it hurt the business? That's fine. We just need to get the earnings thing, you know to hit it and there they don't even understand the people reporting to them what businesses they're in you know because just earnings whatever um and so even with and that's the problem like even within a giant organization or something like that that's what starts happening is that people at each level know that the other people don't really understand what's going on and then they get surprised they're like how could this happen so suddenly how could everything have fallen apart and you know, it's well, because we were moving things around to tell you slightly better stuff, trying not to, you know, tell you the bad news right away. And then suddenly you have a big shortfall of something because you didn't really understand what was happening. You know, um, 
So if you know an industry, know a product, whatever, then you have a much better sense of that, right? Of how it will affect it. Um, and sometimes just visiting a place is very helpful that way. Um, we talked about that. I We visited a site that I think was super useful that way because um, we the, the reason why is we got to see both the customer the uh, customer facing part of the business and the part the customer can't see. So if we just get taken into a boardroom and have a talk, doesn't really do a lot. But if we get to see both sides, I know what their expenses are and stuff. So now I get a really good sense of how they're spending it. And so they present a face to the customer that doesn't give you any sense of a low-cost operation. But once you get uh, in the back of the house, so to speak, it's a very low cost operation. And that's what we wanted to see. Cause we knew that their expenses were really low and stuff, but we don't know where they're spending it. And they could be skimping on stuff that the customer can see and, uh, all of that. And, and really what they are doing is when they're out of sight of the customer, they're super cheap and stuff. Whereas some of their competitors, you get a little more lavish, uh, offices and stuff and more your location and your office and who you're in proximity to and stuff maybe determines a lot more of the, uh, prestige and the whatever. And so there's kind of costs that aren't just salary in there that, but it's part of what gives you your importance in the, in the company and stuff. Right. So seeing that is really, really important. And in some businesses, uh, you know, an Aldi or a Costco or whatever, you can like see a lot of stuff up front yourself. Um, but then there's other things you can't see. You go to Disney World or a cruise ship or something, you see all the front of the house stuff, but you have no idea how they're doing things behind and how complicated it is and everything. So it, it helps to like know a little bit about that, to know people who work in those things and to get a feel for how they're doing stuff. Mainly, I think, because of the, it helps you filter other information, right? Like, when you get told something, if what they're saying makes any sense or not. Um, and so, if you invest in something that you know nothing about, then they could tell me anything. So, biotech things that could tell me anything, you know? Because most of them are first... It, it'll cure some disease that I don't even know how the disease works. So, yeah, they can tell me the mechanism of action is whatever they want. I, I don't know how the disease works. I don't know how to stop the disease. So anything they tell me is as likely as anything else, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well said. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. If this is the first time you are joining us, be sure to hit that subscribe button, check out all of our content out on the internet, and reach out to me if you're interested in learning about our money management services. I thank everybody so much for all the support and we'll see you in the next podcast. Take care.